It's our 14th and last Sunday, not ever, but in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's been a strange journey, uh, kind of this search for meaning and, and purpose in life. And we've seen him say uh, things that sounded odd to us and, uh, and stuff. And so finally we're getting here to the conclusion of the book. Uh, to the conclusion of, of what it is. And you might notice even in the text that the voice kind of changes there a little bit. Uh, and, it, and it could be, there's two reasons for this. One, either there is a, a second author in the sense of a, an editor comes in and, uh, and, and writes there at the end. But uh, that's not what most people think. Most, uh, most actually view this as, as where Solomon has actually stepped back from the text. He's finished it and he steps back into this and he looks at it again and, and writes this conclusion that summarizes it and brings it, wraps it all up. So... Uh, either way, though, don't worry too much about that, uh, whether it's Solomon, whether it's an editor. It doesn't really change the meaning of the text one way or another. Uh, and really, either way, this is ultimately the Word of God, uh, which we know is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And, and what it seeks to teach us today is how to live our life, uh, a life of meaning on this planet where we exist. Um, this planet where over and over again we've been told we exist for like a mist. Um, here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, so open up to Ecclesiastes one last time this year. Uh, and if you go ahead and you open up right to the middle, you're in the book of Psalms. And then if you turn to the right, where's Sarah? She, she thinks that sounds like you're uh, given a, uh, getting arrested. What is it where you turn to the right? Anyway. Uh, Turn to the right, you'll find yourself in Proverbs, and then in the book of Ecclesiastes, and go all the way to the end, chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to begin reading in verse verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, the plants don't ask for meaning in life. The animals don't search for significance. The heavens declare your glory, and yet they do not ask how they should live. But man and woman whom you have also created desire an answer to how we can live a life that matters. Already in this text, we have read that we should fear you and keep your commandments. Teach us what this means. And give us hearts to accept it and hearts which, having been transformed, look to Jesus, our Savior, and to live with meaning through the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to dwell in your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My parents divorced when I was in the sixth grade. And I have this memory from around that, that time period, uh, this memory of going fishing with my, with my father. And on that outing, as we left, we stopped by and we, we, we picked up a boy. Uh, we brought him along with us. His child was younger than me, and his name was Matthew. And uh, he was the son of some woman that my, mo- that my dad knew. 
Um, this is the era when no one wore seatbelts, and so he's standing up in the back seat as we're driving. Uh, and my dad, who grew up as a country farmer, looks back to him and says, son, you got to sit down on that seat or something country like that. And at that moment, Matthew's eyes kind of narrowed. You could see he didn't appreciate this. And he responded, you're not my dad. I don't have to do what you say. It was a childish response. It was a statement of, I don't belong to you. And I'm not afraid of you. And I have no love for you. And you have no authority over me. You have no right to tell me what to do. I can't remember how my dad responded in that moment. That might be a good thing. But the story has stuck with me because it became this ironic thing in my life because just a few years later, my father married his mother. Um, You can probably see where this is going. My father adopted Matthew, and he is now Matthew's father. Um, So all that changed. Uh, The threat of those words, though, of, of my father to Matthew, both before and after this adoption, was a threat to Matthew's personal autonomy. And that's the same threat that God's word uh, to each and every one of us, whether we are children of God by faith or or just people whom God has created, it's a threat to our autonomy. See, God's word means that we aren't the end all in our own existence. And and so we take any threat to our self-governing very serious because we're a culture who bows down at the altar of autonomy. Often the objection that we we hear about the the laws of the land are that this prevents me from doing what I want to do. In a sense, that ridiculous song by Miley Cyrus has become this anthem of our nation, where she sings, it's our party, we can do what we want to. It's our party, we can say what we want. It's our party, we can love who we want. I think what we've learned in Ecclesiastes is that we have a great number of freedoms and, and gifts to enjoy The reality is, this is not our party. The God who created us has a rightful authority over us. And to claim otherwise is not powerful. It's eternally stupid, eternally foolish. So let's consider this text before it. It begins with this description of the preacher, not me, the preacher, but the author of Ecclesiastes. And we learn here that he is wise. But more than that, that he's collected wisdom. And he spent much time considering this wisdom, not just to have it, but to share it with other people. It wasn't an end-all for him. It says, Proverbs 15, 7 speaks, The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. See, the books that we've just read, Ecclesiastes and, and, and Proverbs, is wisdom which has been collected and shared. Those who were following Christ a thousand years ago were also reading that wisdom. And what we see here is that this wisdom has absolute and real value. In verse 11, we read, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. That the words of the wise are given by one shepherd means that these are inspired by by God himself. See, all throughout Scripture, God is often referred to as the shepherd of his people. Many examples. Uh, One of the ones you probably all know, Psalm 23, certainly comes to mind. The Lord is my shepherd. See, the image there is that God shepherds his people, and and what we're seeing in this text, shepherds his people with wisdom, with the words of Scripture. And and the way that wisdom works is illustrated with these two concepts. First, he says that it is like, uh, that says these words are like goads. 
Okay, not gourds. That's the first thing I heard when I read that. Every time I hear that, gourds are the weird squash-like things that old women like to paint. Um, these are not gourds. Those would not do anything for you. Uh, but goads. Goads were these long sticks with these pointy ends on them. And, and they were used to, to poke sheep, kind of like a, a, a cattle prod. And, and the idea here is that if the sheep is going the wrong direction, towards something dangerous, a, a cliff or whatever it might be, they'd be poked with this, this goad. Uh, and that would keep them from wandering in the dangerous. And I, and I think what makes me sad about this is how each generation seems less concerned with the wisdom of, of Scripture. See, it's like we become numb to the goading of Scripture. And in that numb, numbness, we, we pridefully wander out on our own where uh, there we find ourselves falling off cliffs of untruth or we find ourselves being taken by wolves of deception. And one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves is, is in what way is the word of God goading me? Is it calling you to live or to behave in a way that is contrary to the way you want, but absolutely the way you need? See, we need to be prepared to be poked by his word. Feeling that sting and, and, and then correct our actions, our thoughts. Uh, because really the goading is, is loving even if it feels painful. It's better to be disciplined in this life than the next. The other illustration here says, like nails firm, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Don't picture nails like you might make a birdhouse out of. Picture the nails, um, big huge tent stakes that you would nail down to, to keep a, a tent in its position. Uh, even when the wind comes and the rain comes and things of that nature. That's, that's how godly wisdom is for us. It keeps us grounded no matter what is going on around us. And the next two verses are, are these three commands. The, the first command get, he gives is found in verse 12. Uh, essentially, it's beware of other wisdom. The verse reads, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a wariness of the flesh. See, the assumption here is, is what we already know to be true. Uh, that we as humans are constantly looking for more wisdom, new wisdom, more wisdom, somewhere else wisdom. Uh, even with Scripture, we, we find ourselves wandering for new interpretations, even of the most simple, basic statements in Scripture for new interpretations of it. And, and this is a warning to be careful of what you accept as wisdom. So the truth is, you cannot read all the books being published today. You have limited time, uh, limited time to read, limited time to listen, limited time to watch. And so there's this encouragement to choose wisely the words that you will be shaped by. One of the things for our, our current generation is, is blog posts. These have become really this new source of wisdom. Every day there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, some of them are great. Many of them are absolute rubbish. It's a British word for you, Tim. <laughs> and... <laughs> And this might surprise you to hear. Um, just because something is written on the internet does not mean it's true. You write that down. In all seriousness, though, um, let me warn you to be cautious of the blogs you read. Uh, let me encourage you that if your spiritual diet consists of more blog, blog, blog posts than it does of Scripture, then you need to change your diet. That is not a healthy way for us to live as Christians. 
And now the, the major theme of this passage is found in verse 13. In fact, it's, it's also the major theme of this entire book of Ecclesiastes. You, you might remember back in Ecclesiastes 2.3, Solomon began to have this question. He was pondering a question. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly. Now listen to this. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life this question of purpose. What can we do that matters? Not how do we get our name in the history books. Not how do we get the most pleasure out of life, but how do I live today and live tomorrow and the remaining of the years of my life in a way that actually matters? And here in verse 13, he answers his own question. I mean, look at the text with me. I'll read it again. It says, the end of the matter... All has been heard, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. The end of the matter, all has been heard, all things have been considered, and and this is the final verdict. The verdict is in. Do you want to, to live a life with the meaning that God intended it to be lived with? He says the first thing we do is fear God. You know, he's told us this many times in this book before, fear God. We've heard this before. God's word calls his people to fear him all over in the scriptures. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 14.27 tells us, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. In Acts 9.31, into the New Testament, we learn about the early Christian church, and it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and listen to this, and was walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. In Deuteronomy 10.12-13, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Right at the beginning but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and his statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. One more here, Psalm 111.10. We hear again this connection between the fear of God and wisdom. It reads, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it it have a good understanding. If if fear is the beginning of wisdom, if it's the fountain of life, it's the, the end of the matter, then why do we so often try to convince people that God ought not to be feared? I think it's certainly because the fear of God is difficult to relate to all of our other understandings of this word fear. See, people fear violence and abusive men. People fear snakes and lions and all animals which have that killer instinct within them. People fear punishment and and pain and death. People fear losing something that they love. And, And so when we hear fear God, we want to align that with some other understanding of fear we have. One of those things I just listed. And, and what we find is that the fear of God belongs in its own totally unique category. Sure, there is an element of terror. 
That must be part of our understanding of what it means to fear God. But it's more than that, and more than that in a very good way. When we fear like Scripture is talking about, we no longer can be in charge. We let go of our autonomy. It's like Isaiah, you might remember from Isaiah 6, standing before the presence of the Lord. We don't run from this kind of fear. We bow down to it. The other command in verse 13 is connected to the first in the sense that it, it builds upon them. These are not unique and separate things. Here's what I mean. When, when we do fear God, I mean really fear God, the result is the action of keeping God's commandments. Obedience then is the evidence of our fearing God. Not perfect obedience, but it, if we genuinely stand in awe before God, then we will desire and we will seek to keep his commandments. Again, this is not the only place in Scripture that we see this. In Deuteronomy 13.4, Scripture tells us, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. See, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their proper place. For instance, we are very prone to fear other humans or groups of other humans. Um, when we fear man, what we do is, is we, make them, um, we make them and what they think about us of utmost importance. And that's man-fearing, human-fearing. Uh, we desire their approval, and we fear that they might disapprove of us in some way. So we do what they want us to do, at least what we think they want us to do. Uh, when we fear God, we are so overwhelmed with him that we rightly elevate his view, his word, as most important in our life. And so we do what he wants us to do. We obey. See, we tend to think this, this changes in the New Testament, that, that the law is just tossed away and that, and that grace means we no longer have to obey God. The truth is, we're still called to obey God, not for the forgiveness of our sin, but obedience is the work of sanctifica sanctification, the act of becoming more like Christ day by day. And, and this is something that God is doing in his people. And that's why God has given us this Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Not to earn salvation, but as an outworking of the salvation which Christ has earned on our behalf. If indeed our faith is in Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, we read, and these are Christ's words, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That's our eternal judgment. Christ's righteousness in the place of our sin. What we see, um, what we see in many places of Scripture is that fearing God and loving God are very similar concepts. Um, let me try to explain this. Because we get it wrong if we connect God's love for us with obeying his commandments. Listen to that. We get it wrong if we connect God's love for us with obeying his commandments. We get it right when we connect our love for God with obeying his commands. What I mean is God doesn't decide to love you on the condition of your obedience to his commands. But if the love that you say you have for God is real, is genuine, is given by the Spirit, is enabled by faith, then you will be seeking earnestly to obey His commands. I'm going to show you this in the New Testament a few places. John 14, 21, 
says, whoever has my commandments, this is Christ speaking again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I, and I, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Three verses later, John 14, 24, Jesus says it the other way around. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. In John 14, 15, we read, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Savior who died for you, um, the Savior who loved you, in fact, so much that he died for you to redeem you from hell, tells you, this is how you show your love for me. Or the way we say it today, this is my love language. Keep my commandments. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 adds to this when it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then just a few chapters later in the same book, 1 John 5, 3, he gives us some perspective of this, um, that, that the commandments of God aren't going to crush us. It reads, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and listen to the second part, and, he command, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, you will not obey perfectly. You cannot obey perfectly in this life. The question then is, do you even care? Do we even care what he has to say? See, living in this, this era of endless information, we, we struggle ever to come to some conclusion and, and act. We, we tend to think we need more information. We don't always need more knowledge. We need to believe what we know from Scripture and live by it. I have a, a friend who counsels a great deal, and in one situation, I remember him saying, I'm not sure what to do anymore. They know what to do. They know more about this subject than anyone I've ever known. Uh, they know what the Scriptures teach. They know how to bring it to a godly resolution. They have the knowledge. knowledge. Now they just need to believe God's Word and obey God's Word. Honestly, when I first heard him say that, my first thought was, these people are idiots. But then God convicted me. And I realized in many less destructive ways, that's my problem too. It's not that I'm, I'm ignorant of what Scripture teaches. The problem is I'm, I'm rebellious. Um, the problem is I, I fear man more than I do God. Or really, I, I value my autonomy over submitting to God. The end of verse 13 helps put this all in perspective for us. Uh, we often think of ourselves, um, think to ourselves, really, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what God wants from me. And here we've just been told by God, fear God and keep his commandments. And, and then it's confirmed for us. The text says, for this is the whole duty of man. In the Hebrew, the word duty is not even there. Uh, it literally says, for this is the whole of man. It's our essence. This is ground zero on the pursuit of purpose, not just something for us to do. Uh, it's the very heart of why we exist. Verse 14 finishes this book, and, and, and here he gives these reasons for fearing God and these reasons for obeying his commandments. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the reason he gives is, God will bring everything into judgment. He says this includes secret things. Your porn addiction. That lie that nobody knows about. 
He says this includes good things like the anonymous gift you gave her, the way you've welcomed your, your neighbor into your home with hospitality. He says it includes evil things like the gossip you spread or that hatred you have in your heart for someone. To the word judgment is difficult for us to hear. But I want you to consider this in light of, of what we've heard Solomon tell us over and over and over in this book. Remember that phrase we saw over and over and over again. All is vanity, vanity of vanities, meaningless. What we find then is that the judgment actually gives meaning. Um, Philip Ryken put this in words better than I can. Uh, it's a bit of an extended quote, but it's worth hearing. I'm going to read it for you. He says, Why does Ecclesiastes tell us about the final judgment here? Because it means that everything matters. If there's no God and therefore no final judgment, then it's hard to see how anything we do really matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. At the final judgment, it will matter how we used our time, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in the eternal kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, what our hands touched and our mouth spoke. Whether we obeyed our father and our mother will matter. So with the look we gave them and the little comment we made as we were walking away that <clears throat> what we did for a two-year-old will matter. The way we made time for her and got down on her level, what we said about someone else's performance will matter. The sarcastic mark or the word of genuine praise, the proud boast and the selfless act sacrifice will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. The cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all of it matters. Christian, do you understand this? That the way you live really matters. See, the New Testament also speaks about judgment. In Matthew 12, 36-37, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Um, even further, during my study this week, I ended up in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and as I began looking at this, I contacted Travis and, and John to see if I was insane. Um, I want you to turn over there real quick. Uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. You turn past all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, cruise past Acts and Romans, and, and then finally uh, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, find chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 10, but just stick a f your, your finger there uh, and wait just a minute. Um, because there's, there's very, various views on this. Uh, some believe that there is, there's one judgment, and that's it. Others believe there are two judgments. Uh, the first in regards to salvation, the second in regards to rewards or, or treasures in heaven. Uh, what's agreed upon is that we will be counted righteous and granted eternal on the basis uh, of Christ's sacrifice and not our good works. See, you cannot contribute anything to your own salvation. That is a, a gift of God by grace through faith. You contribute nothing. Um, the second judgment then it is not about salvation. It's a, a judgment which considers what we did with the gift of faith. Um, it's a mystery how the rewards would work, what they are, um, how it is someone could receive some and another, another, another amount and yet you not feel uh, jealous of some sort in eternity. All that stuff is quite a mystery. And yet God tells us of this judgment in Scripture. 
Uh, you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this. Paul is writing about death, and then in verse 10 he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Notice Paul is a Christian writing to Christians, and he says, we. Uh, so he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about Christians. He says, we. And, he says, and, and what we see here is that Christ is the judge, and the purpose of the judgment is that we receive what is due for what we have done, good or evil. Which is really pointing back to the same conclusion that we're seeing in Ecclesiastes. What you believe, what you say, what you do in life matters. Life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it, matters. See, when I sit down to, to, to preach a text and I begin to read through it, one of the questions I'm always asking myself is, is what does this text implore me to believe or to do? Because whatever it's asking me to believe, or asking, it's asking us to believe. And, and the text today is, is pretty straightforward. It says, first, believe that God is worthy of fear. See, he is large and you are small. He is strong and you are weak. He is holy. You are sinful. He is pure and you are filthy. He is wise and you are ignorant. You exist because he decided you exist. And he exists even if you decide he does not. He has absolute authority over you as your creator and as your heavenly father. The second aspect of this text, then, is that, that we show that we fear God by obeying his commandments. And, and in light of the gospel, show that we love God by obeying his commandments. Not to earn his favor, not to gain salvation, but simply because you love him. Him who has first loved you. Him who has given you his life in order that you might live eternally with him in his presence. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the end of the matter. That you fear God and keep his commandments. I want to close with a verse that's really just before the verse we read in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9. And it says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. May we in all our imperfection desire and, and seek to please our Heavenly Father who has loved us deeply. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for life. We thank you for lives that matter, for the wise words of Scripture which goad us for protection. We thank you for the gift of faith that saves us from our sin and the gift of faith that works in our life, making us more like you. We thank you that we are not left ignorant or foolish, but have received in Scripture a revelation of who you are and what you desire of us, and what you have done for us as your children. May you be glorified as we keep our eyes on Christ, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.